Welcome. My name is Matt, if I haven't met you before, and uh, this is, um, it's good to be here. I have done a sermon before, but it was online, so this is the first time that I've stood before you, and uh, in light of that, we might pray for me. <laughs> Lord, we give thanks for this opportunity uh, to read your word. Uh, we give thanks that we are able to gather freely together, and uh, that we give thanks, Lord, that you have given us your word. And so, Lord, I ask that uh, you might reveal uh, your intent here f to us. I pray, Lord, that we might um, be able to read your word and understand your will for us. And I pray this wholly reliant on you, Lord, and your Holy Spirit within us. We pray this in your name. Amen. I don't know if, you, uh, if you're the same as me, but, but perhaps you are. Uh, I read some of these stories where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees and I kind of get a bit excited because I think here comes another Jesus zinger. You know, Jesus is going to trap these guys in their own game, in their own noose. And uh, I mean, a great example uh, is, I think it's actually the Sadducees who, who test uh, Jesus on this one. They bring him a coin and they say, you know, is it lawful uh, to pay the tax? And Jesus holds the coin and he flips it over and says, whose head's on that? You know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And, uh, and instead, you know, be focused on the kingdom of heaven. And you get, yes, you got him. You got them again. But to do that, to keep hoping for a clever Jesus moment, is to miss the point in this story. And so as we're reading, as we're reading this, my encouragement to you is to think carefully about what it is that Jesus is highlighting to, to those who are listening. Um, if you've got your, um, your handout, um, I want to kind of signpost uh, a couple of things that we'll run through as we go there. Um, the very first thing I, I, I've titled my sermon, Who is this guy? And it's a great question. And I think the people at the time are asking, are asking that question, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But as we read through that story, we have Jesus explain that actually Jesus is greater than David, David the, the, the king, who is um, Israel's greatest king. Most of the stories in the Old Testament that deal with kings are about David. But David the imperfect king, Jesus is greater than David. Uh, Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus says he's greater than the temple. That's huge. That's a big claim. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath rules. Jesus actually is greater than the Sabbath rules. And keeping the Sabbath, um, Jesus says, Jesus fulfills a prophecy, the last one, that nations will put their hope in a victorious servant. So who is this guy? That's, that's the overarching picture that we, um, that we have here, the, the question that we have. And uh, I want you to encourage, uh, encourage you to think deeply about that. But I also want to kind of back that onto the end of Nathan's sermon last, uh, last week. And Nathan's uh, sermon ended with Jesus', Jesus words at uh, chapter 11. He, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Well, I spend some time in that because I need rest. I need rest. I don't know what your life looks like, but I live my life at a frenetic pace. And when Marty described those four items, solitude, silence, Sabbath and study, I find it difficult to find space for those things. I'm sure the, the writer of the book, and I, I have read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, I, um, I rushed through the reading, <laughs> would say, well, Matt, you've got your priorities wrong, and I'm, I'm sure I, I do. And, and in one sense, this is why I'm here, is to unpack the word of God, because God also says that I'm liable to get my priorities wrong. I think it's also important for us to consider that when we look at the Pharisees, we like seeing them get trapped in their own, uh, in their own traps. We have to be mindful that it's very easy for us to be pharisaical ourselves. And so an example might be in Sunday school when we read about the, the Pharisee who is praying in the temple and the poor man who is praying in the temple. And the poor man says, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee says, Lord, I've, I've done my work today and uh, I give thanks that I'm not like that guy. We could be in danger of getting to the end of that story and go, Lord, thank God, we're not like the Pharisees. And wouldn't that be the case? We could easily do that. So it's the challenge of the, um, not my alarm this time, the challenge of the modern world is that it's difficult to stop. It's difficult to stop. Jesus wants us to stop. He wants us to stop right now and consider deeply what it is that he's saying. In the context of, uh, of the fourth commandment, the Pharisees, the Pharisees have added some rules. And I want to tell you, even though we like seeing the, the Pharisees caught in their own traps, I actually have a deep empathy for them because they've worked out, ah, the law is here, fourth commandment's very clear, keep the Sabbath, and they've added just some little interpretations, about 39 of them, 39 little extra interpretations. Um, the loosing and tying of knots, forbidden. No shoelaces to be tied. That's an example of them. But can you imagine the heavy yoke that it might very quickly become to ensure that you have done every single element of those rules, those laws. And so when Jesus is talking about the heavy yoke, he's speaking directly about those things. But the application is very clear. What rules have we put upon ourselves? So I guess I want to highlight that, that this this passage sits right on the back end of what Nathan was, was preaching about. And if you've reflected upon that uh, over this last week, I, I want to encourage you. All that Jesus says only makes sense because he died and defeats death on the cross. Uh, he dies and he is resurrected. Without that piece of the puzzle, without that piece of the puzzle, um, we've got some wise teaching but he's also promised some things which he couldn't fulfill unless he is whom he says he is. And so 
At that point, it's time for us to get into the passage. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. In the context, it was lawful when one person had, uh, had, who owned a field had gone through and harvested. It was lawful that they leave the edges unharvested. It was also lawful that if they used a scythe and cut through the grain, if they missed a few sections, they had to leave them. They weren't to go back. And that was because those heads of grain were to be left for the poor, for those who didn't own the field. And in fact, if you can recall the story of Ruth, one of her, her ways of feeding she and, and Naomi was to, to pick those poor heads of grain. So it's part of Jewish culture. They understand those things are to be left. The Pharisees see the disciples eating those pieces of grain and say, you guys are harvesting. They are being so rigid with their rule keeping that they've missed the point that those heads of grain are to be left for those who need the food. And they try, to, they try to trick Jesus here. It's Sabbath time. They're, they're harvesting, according to the, to, the, um, to the Pharisees. And they're trying to get him to respond in a particular way. Um, Jesus knows what they're talking about. He understands this. But he remember, he sees their extra rules as a heavy yoke. And so he says... Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. The bread that was put there as a sacrifice for God, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Well, in the context, when Jesus talks about David, David is their forerunner for a messiah. He's their greatest king. So when he says, well, David did this, the Pharisees will, uh, are probably thinking to themselves, well, of course David did that. That's fine for David. That's fine for David. He's the great king David. But actually what he's, he's highlighting for us is that David the anointed king, David the anointed king, is, is the future hope of salvation offers the future hope of salvation. And Jesus is saying, and me and my companions, we're like him. We're like him. He's saying, in fact, I'm greater than him. So to compare yourself to David in that context is to say that. It's a huge thing to claim. It's a huge thing to claim. It's interesting for us to note, I don't want to get caught there, but the opening of Matthew opens... With, these, with, with a couple of phrases, Jesus is the son of David, is the son of Abraham. So Abraham, the father of nations, David, the greatest king, Jesus. Jesus makes a big claim on himself there. 
Or haven't you read, says Jesus, he continues, in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, they work on the Sabbath to do temple duty, and yet are innocent. So some, some people are allowed to work on the Sabbath. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus has just made the claim that he's greater than David. He then makes the claim that the temple, God's resting place, is greater than the Sabbath rules. And then he says something is greater than the temple. So he keeps elevating the stakes here. It's significant because Jesus is saying he is greater than the temple. Now the temple's where you go to make sacrifice. The temple's where you go to meet with God. Um, the temple holds uh, the, um, the 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 temple holds the, the tablets which have the law on it. The temple was originally the tabernacle, and in fact, what Jesus is saying is that he tabernacles with us. He he lives with us. So to make this claim is significant because it it matters to the Pharisees. They're they're looking for a Messiah, but they're actually trying for their own righteousness. Which brings us to the next part, which is Jesus says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And Beck read for us um, uh, from Hosea 6, and you can have a look at it again. And she read from verse 4, What can I do with you, Ephraim? That's Israel. What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And there it is. He says, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He says of his disciples, these guys are innocent. They're eating. They're eating the grains that are left for them and they're hungry. It's not work. And even if it were work, they're innocent because they're with me. The second part of verse 6, though, gives us the clue of what that means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, means acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So the, um, the Pharisees have got this very transactional nature uh, of, of operating with God. Um, one of my children has got in his mind that he can do a transactional relationship with me. And, uh, and the way that works is that we have a range of family chores that must be done. We've got some extra jobs as well and there's pocket money involved. But um, when I ask him to uh, wash the car, he says, what for? How much? What are you going to give me? Um, I've made the mistake. Uh, it's my fault. Uh, I've made the mistake of when we've been out surfing, saying to him, that particular large wave, that one's worth a dollar. If you take off on that, I will give you a dollar. And so far I've been choosing well. <laughs> they are enormous waves and he hasn't been taking the bait. But he does then see that, that, that we're open to negotiation. That one's a little bit smaller. Is that a 75 cent wave? And, uh, and very quickly I owe a huge amount of money because he doesn't mind not doing anything on the waves. He just takes them. 
it's a very transactional relationship and I need to be very mindful of that. I'm going to break out of that. That's part of the message here. But isn't it the case that we could easily find ourselves wanting to make a transactional relationship with God? God, I prayed that you would deliver me through this difficult period of exams and you didn't. Or, Lord, I've fasted. Why haven't I got that job? Uh, Lord, I turn up to church every, every week, but I'm suffering. We could easily become a little bit like the, the Pharisees. I did this for you, Lord, therefore I'm righteous. Uh, Jesus targets this earlier in Matthew. He, he says, your righteousness has got to surpass even that of the Pharisees. And then he says of the Pharisees, you know, you've, you've, you've tithed, you've given a 10% of even your herbs and spices, but you haven't cared for people. He says, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You know, it looks great on the outside, but inside it's just dead bones. Well, I think Jesus is also saying to us, check yourself. He's saying it to me. Check yourself, Matt. Are you in a transactional relationship with me? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire an acknowledgement of God, not burnt offerings I've had to I've had to think deeply about this I've had to think deeply about this um, and another book of the Bible James says I count this as true religion when you look after the orphans and care for the widows have I done that have I done that so what what is what Jesus is saying here is that there is something greater than the temple. There's something greater than David. There's something greater than even the Sabbath. An acknowledgement of God. What, what does that mean then for, for keeping the law? Well, why is the law there? It's a good question actually. Why do we have the law? Well, the law highlights to us that we can never meet the law. It can never be good enough. I can never be righteous enough. I will never never meet what God requires of me, which is to be perfect. Uh, do you recall Jesus says, and it's like a it's like the the punchline to a joke where I'm I'm the setup for the joke. Therefore, be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matt? You can insert your own name there, perhaps. I can never be perfect. It's actually gut-wrenching to consider. Jesus says there is rest to be found in him. There is rest to be found in him. The law operates for us to know that we need Jesus. The law operates for that purpose. At verse 8, he goes on. So he's made the, the point that... Um, sorry, I'm just going to go back and make sure I've got that point. 
Yep, good. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's offering rest. He's saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. And he uses this phrase, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And the reason I highlight that to you is that the reason the Pharisees have been following Jesus around is because he represents the greatest show on earth. And for the last several chapters, he's either been doing amazing teaching, he teaches as one with authority, or he's been healing the sick, or he calms a storm, or he feeds 5,000. He's been doing things that just defy their experience of humans. And in fact, they're quite frightened of that. So when he says, and they're frightened of that because he threatens to disrupt their pattern of living. And their pattern of living is all about the transactional aspect that we've talked about. So when he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath, he actually quotes um, a prophecy in Daniel, which describes the son of man as the one that all nations will bow down to. So when he says, the son of man is, is, is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the son of man, I'm greater than the Sabbath. The Pharisees continue following him, though. He says, going, going on from that place, he went into, the, into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for uh, was there a man with a shriveled hand, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees ask him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or should you keep that law as well? That don't do work on the Sabbath." He says, he says to them. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There is an order to things here. God has created and he creates day one, he creates the heavens. Day two and so on, and he creates the earth. In day six, he creates man after he's created the animals. On day seven, he rests. There is an order. There is instruction to mankind to take dominion over the earth. Part of that is the stewarding of, of the, the animals. And yet, in the Levitical law, they say it's okay to go and rescue that sheep when it falls into the pit. And it makes sense. In, I think it's actually a well in, in Leviticus. If you don't rescue the sheep, well, A, you lose a valuable animal. B, the well is fouled. No one can drink from it anymore. Jesus says, but surely you don't think that a person is less valuable than a sheep. Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to heal. He says to the man, four words, stretch out your hand. Four words. Is this work? So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. And again, another miracle that points that there is something greater than the temple here is Jesus. Jesus is king. And in contrast... Is it lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath? In contrast, but the Pharisees went out and they plotted to kill him. The Pharisees, ironically, do work. They plot and they do evil. They're trying to trap Jesus 
here, but they actually do evil themselves. It echoes, in one sense, the teaching of Jesus um, on murder. If you have anger in your heart, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be subject to, to, to judgment. Aware of this, Jesus does know what the Pharisees are thinking. Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him. And he healed all who were ill. Though he does it for the man who's got the shriveled hand. He warned them not to tell others. And this is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus is greater than David. Jesus is greater than the, ta- uh, than the temple. He is greater than the Sabbath rules because he is God. Who is this guy? Jesus is God come to earth. Jesus fulfills prophecy. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah to come. And so when it says here in his nations the, in his name, the nations will put their hope for those people who recognize that Jesus is God, for those who put their hope in him, we will have rest. There is there is the hope. And it's a hope now. We really truly can put our hope in Jesus. We can rest in relationship with him. But because he has both died for our sins, for yours and mine, and because he has defeated death, because of that, he has a, there is a hope beyond this world. There will be a full restoration of the heavens and the earth. So Jesus isn't saying you can find rest in the rules, in keeping rules. He's not saying that you can find rest in keeping rituals, in doing rituals. If you find yourself coming to church in order to do a rich, fulfill a ritual, then you've missed the point. If you're, if you're doing Sabbath-type activities so that I've done the Sabbath, so you give me rest, Lord, we've missed the point. We find rest because we are in relationship with Jesus. Jesus has created us for relationship. In him, through him and for him are all things made, including us. And it's in that space that we will find that true rest and that true hope. See, Jesus, in being greater than than David, he fulfills all that David Promised all that was hoped for in David. He's God on earth. And in being greater than the temple, we can now not have to go to the temple in Jerusalem because God dwells with us. We can be in relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus now. 
He is greater than the Sabbath because he is the giver of the law. He says he is the fulfillment of the law. And he shows us rest. He is God's provision for us. He offers mercy. He cares for the weak and the vulnerable. And we read in that passage about the bruised reed, the small candle, that he's not going to snuff those out. He's not going to break the reed. That's, that's us. That's, we're the weak and the vulnerable. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to break you. Come to me and find rest. My yoke is light and easy. God delights in the relationship that we can have with him because he doesn't want to burden us with rules. He wants to show us mercy. That's why he sent Jesus for us. It's not the backup plan. It's the plan all along. And so when, when we see the rest, it's because, it's because we realise that we have the relationship, we can have relationship with him. We can acknowledge him as our Lord and Saviour. My encouragement to you is as we consider this passage that we not miss out on Jesus with the, quick, with the quick-witted line, the zinger, which traps the Pharisees. That we don't just get caught there going, wow, Jesus is really clever. Jesus is Lord and Saviour. And that makes all the difference. Jesus is not just a clever teacher. Jesus wants to be in relationship with us. He is God. How he treats us is kindly, is kindly. What that means for us is that we can find our identity in him. We can find our purpose in him. We can find our purpose in him and not in following rules. We can find our purpose in him and not doing ritual. We can find our purpose in him and it means that it does not matter what someone else might think of us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're successful or not at work. It doesn't matter if life is difficult or not. He says it's going to be. We can find our rest in him because he is our Lord and Saviour and he has done it all on the cross. We can find our rest in him because, uh, because he has us in mind. This is an offer that he has for us. The Pharisees want rules and rituals and regulations, but they fail to see the one in the midst, in their midst. They plot to kill him. Instead, we should beg for mercy. We should be like the poor man who says, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. In that space, in that space, you will find rest. Let's pray. Lord, we recognise our failings. We repent of them. We cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me, a sinner. For you are the king. You are greater than, than David. You're greater than the temple. You're greater than the Sabbath. And you offer rest. Lord, we recognise that, uh, that, that you are the king and we, we worship you. We take your yoke upon us. We ask that you teach us. We recognise that you are gentle and humble. 
in heart. And Lord, we just ask that you might give us rest for our souls. You might give us a true rest. We give thanks, Lord, that you came to earth for us, that you yourself got up on that cross and died for us. And Lord, we praise your name that you defeated death on that third day you rose. And Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be with you in heaven. And we praise your name. Amen.